Part One of Lady Interfox. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Addison. Lady into Fox by David Garnet. Wonderful or supernatural events are not so uncommon, rather they are irregular in their incidents. Thus there may be not one marvel to speak of in a century, and then often enough comes a plentiful crop of them. Monsters of all sorts swarm suddenly upon the earth. Comets blaze in the sky. Eclipses frighten nature. Meteors fall in rain, while mermaids and sirens beguile, and sea serpents engulf every passing ship, and terrible cataclysms beset humanity. But the strange event which I shall here relate came alone, unsupported, without companions into a hostile world, and for that very reason claimed little of the general attention of mankind. For the sudden changing of Mrs. Tabrick into a vixen is an established fact which we may attempt to account for as we will. Certainly it is in the explanation of the fact, and the reconciling of it with our general notions, that we shall find most difficulty, and not in accepting for true a story which is so fully proved, and that, not by one witness, but by a dozen, all respectable, and with no possibility of collusion between them. But here I will confine myself to an exact narrative of the event and all that followed on it. Yet I would not dissuade any of my readers from attempting an explanation of this seeming miracle, because up till now none has been found which is entirely satisfactory. What adds to the difficulty to my mind is that the metamorphosis occurred when Mrs. Tabrick was a full-grown woman, and that it happened suddenly, in so short a space of time. The sprouting of a tail, the gradual extension of hair all over the body, the slow change of the whole anatomy by a process of growth, though it would have been monstrous, would not have been so difficult to reconcile to our ordinary conceptions, particularly had it happened in a young child. But here we have something very different. A grown lady is chained straightway into a fox, there is no explaining that away by any natural philosophy. The materialism of our age will not help us here. 
It is indeed a miracle, something from outside our world altogether, an event which we would willingly accept if we were to meet it invested with the authority of divine revelation in the scriptures, but which we are not prepared to encounter almost in our time, happening in Oxfordshire, amongst our neighbours. The only things which go any way towards an explanation of it are but guesswork, and I give them more because I would not conceal anything than because I think they are of any worth. Mrs. Tibrick's maiden name was certainly Fox, and it is possible that such a miracle happening before, the family may have gained their name as a soubriquet on that account. They were an ancient family, and have had their seat at Tangley Hall time out of mind. It is also true that there was a half-tame fox once upon a time chained up at Tangley Hall in the inner yard, and I have heard many speculative wiseacres in the public houses turn that to great account, though they could not but admit that there was never one there in Miss Sylvia's time. At first I was inclined to think that Sylvia Fox, having once hunted when she was a child of ten, and having been blooded, might furnish more of an explanation. It seems she took great fright or disgust at it, and vomited after it was done. But now I do not see that it has much bearing on the miracle itself, even though we know that after that she always spoke of the poor foxes when a hunt was stirring, and never rode to hounds till after her marriage, when her husband persuaded her to it. She was married in the year 1879 to Mr. Richard Tebrick, after a short courtship, and went to live after their honeymoon at Rylands, near Stokoe, Oxon. One point, indeed, I have not been able to ascertain, and that is how they first became acquainted. Tangley Hall is over thirty miles from Stokoe, and is extremely remote. Indeed, to this day, there is no proper road to it, which is all the more remarkable, as it is the principal, and indeed the only, manor-house for several miles round. Whether it was from a chance meeting on the roads, or less romantic, but more probable, by Mr. Tebrick becoming acquainted with her uncle, a minor canon at Oxford, and thence being invited by him, to visit Tangley Hall, it is impossible to say. But, however they became acquainted, the marriage was a very happy one. The bride was in her twenty-third year. She was small, with remarkably small hands and feet. It is perhaps worth noting that there was nothing at all foxy or vixenish in her appearance. On the contrary, 
she was a more than ordinarily beautiful and agreeable woman. Her eyes were of a clear hazel, but exceptionally brilliant, her hair dark, with a shade of red in it, her skin brownish, with a few dark freckles and little moles. In manner she was reserved almost to shyness, but perfectly self-possessed, and perfectly well-bred. She had been strictly brought up by a woman of excellent principles and considerable attainments, who died a year or so before the marriage, and owing to the circumstance that her mother had been dead many years, and her father bedridden, and not altogether rational for a little while before his death, they had few visitors but her uncle. He often stopped with them a month or two at a stretch, particularly in winter, as he was fond of shooting snipe which are plentiful in the valley there. That she did not grow up a country hoyden is to be explained by the strictness of her governess and the influence of her uncle. But perhaps a living in so wild a place gave her some disposition to wildness, even in spite of her religious upbringing. Her old nurse said, Miss Sylvia was always a little wild at heart, though if this was true, it was never seen by anyone else except her husband. On one of the first days of the year 1880, in the early afternoon, husband and wife went for a walk in the copse on the little hill above Rylands. They were still at this time like lovers in their behaviour, and were always together. While they were walking, they heard the hounds, and later the huntsman's horn in the distance. Mr. Tabrick had persuaded her to hunt on Boxing Day, but with great difficulty, and she had not enjoyed it, though of hacking she was fond enough. Hearing the hunt, Mr. Tabrick quickened his pace, so as to reach the edge of the copse, where they might get a good view of the hounds if they came that way. His wife hung back, and he, holding her hand, began almost to drag her. Before they gained the edge of the copse, she suddenly snatched her hand away from his very violently, and cried out, so that he instantly turned his head. Where his wife had been the moment before, was a small fox of a very bright red. It looked at him very beseechingly, advanced towards him a pace or two, and he saw at once that his wife was looking at him from the animal's eyes. You may well think if he were aghast, and so maybe was his lady, at finding herself in that shape, so they did nothing for nearly half an hour, but stare at each other. He bewildered, she asking him with her eyes, as if indeed she spoke to him, What am I now become? Have pity on me, husband, have pity on me, for I am your wife. So that, with his gazing on her, and knowing her well, even in such a shape, 
yet asking himself at every moment, Can it be she? Am I not dreaming? And her beseeching, and hastily fawning on him, and seeming to tell him that it was she indeed. They came at last together, and he took her in his arms. She lay very close to him, nestling under his coat, and fell to licking his face, but never taking her eyes from his. The husband, all this while, kept turning the thing in his head and gazing on her, but he could make no sense of what had happened, but only comforted himself with the hope that this was but a momentary change, and that presently she would turn back again into the wife that was one flesh with him. One fancy that came to him, because he was so much more like a lover than a husband, was that it was his fault, and this because, if anything dreadful happened, he could never blame her but himself for it. So they passed a good while, till at last the tears welled up in the poor fox's eyes, and she began weeping, but quite in silence, and she trembled too, as if she were in a fever. At this he could not contain his own tears, but sat down on the ground and sobbed for a great while, but between his sobs, kissing her quite as if she had been a woman, and not caring in his grief that he was kissing a fox on the muzzle. They sat thus till it was getting near dusk, when he recollected himself, and the next thing was that he must somehow hide her, and then bring her home. He waited till it was quite dark, that he might the better bring her into her own house without being seen, and buttoned her inside his topcoat, nay, even in his passion, tearing open his waistcoat and his shirt, that she might lie the closer to his heart. For when we are overcome with the greatest sorrow, we act not like men or women, but like children, whose comfort in all their troubles is to press themselves against their mother's breast, or if she be not there, to hold each other tight in one another's arms. When it was dark, he brought her in with infinite precautions, yet not without the dog scenting her after which nothing could moderate their clamour. Having got her into the house, the next thing he thought of was to hide her from the servants. He carried her to the bedroom in his arms, and then went downstairs again. Mr. Tobrick had three servants living in the house, the cook, the parlour-maid, and an old woman who had been his wife's nurse. Besides these women, there was a groom or a gardener, whichever you choose to call him, who was a single man, and so lived out, a lodging with a labouring family, about half a mile away. Mr. Tabrick, going downstairs, pitched upon the parlour-maid. "'Janet,' says he, "'Mrs. Tabrick and I have had some bad news.' and Mrs. Tabrick was called away instantly to London, and left this afternoon, and I am staying to-night to put our affairs in order. We are shutting up the house, and I must give you and Mrs. Brandt a month's wages, and ask you to leave to-morrow morning at seven o'clock. We shall probably go away to the continent, and I do not know when we shall come back. Please tell the others, and now get me my tea, and bring it into my study on a tray.' 
Janet said nothing, for she was a shy girl, particularly before gentlemen. But when she entered the kitchen, Mr. Tabrick heard a sudden burst of conversation with many exclamations from the cook. When she came back with his tea, Mr. Tabrick said, I shall not require you upstairs. Pack your own things, and tell James to have the wagonette ready for you by seven o'clock tomorrow morning to take you to the station. I am busy now, but I will see you again before you go. When she had gone, Mr. Tabrick took the tray upstairs. For the first moment he thought the room was empty and his vixen got away, for he could see no sign of her anywhere. But after a moment he saw something stirring in a corner of the room, and then, behold, she came forth dragging her dressing-gown, into which she had somehow struggled. This must surely have been a comical sight, but poor Mr. Tabrick was altogether too distressed then, or at any time afterwards, to divert himself at such ludicrous scenes. He only called to her softly, "'Sylvia, Sylvia, what do you do there?' And then, in a moment, saw for himself what she would be at, and began once more to blame himself heartily, because he had not guessed that his wife would not like to go naked, notwithstanding the shape she was in. Nothing would satisfy him then till he had clothed her suitably, bringing her dresses from the wardrobe for her to choose. But as might have been expected, they were too big for her now. But at last he picked out a little dressing-jacket that she was fond of wearing sometimes in the mornings. It was made of a flowered silk, trimmed with lace, and the sleeve short enough to sit very well on her now. While he tied the ribbons, his poor lady thanked him with gentle looks, and not without some modesty and confusion. He propped her up in an armchair with some cushions, and they took tea together, she very delicately drinking from a saucer, and taking bread and butter from his hands. All this showed him, or so he thought, that his wife was still herself, there was so little wildness in her demeanour, and so much delicacy and decency, especially in her not wishing to run naked, that he was very much comforted, and began to fancy they could be happy enough, if they could escape the world, and live always alone. From this too sanguine dream, he was aroused by hearing the gardener speaking to the dogs, trying to quiet them, for ever since he had come in with his vixen they had been whining, barking, and growling, and all as he knew, because there was a fox within doors and they would kill it. He started up now, calling to the gardener that he would come down to the dogs himself to quiet them, and bade the man go indoors again and leave it to him. All this he said in a dry, compelling kind of voice, which made the fellow do as he was bid, though it was against his will, for he was curious. Mr. Tabrick went downstairs, and taking his gun from the rack, loaded it, and went out into the yard. Now there were two dogs, one a handsome Irish setter that was his wife's dog, she had brought it with her from Tangley Hall on her marriage. The other was an old fox-terrier called Nelly, that he had had ten years or more. 
When he came out into the yard, both dogs saluted him by barking and whining twice as much as they did before, the setter jumping up and down at the end of his chain in a frenzy, and Nellie shivering, wagging her tail, and looking first at her master and then at the house door, where she could smell the fox right enough. There was a bright moon, so that Mr. Tabrick could see the dogs as clearly as could be. First he shot his wife's setter dead, and then looked about him for Nellie to give her the other barrel, but he could see her nowhere. The bitch was clean gone. Till looking to see how she had broken her chain, he found her lying hid in the back of her kennel. But that trick did not save her, for Mr. Tabrick, after trying to pull her out by her chain and finding it useless, she would not come, thrust the muzzle of his gun into the kennel, pressed it into her body, and so shot her. Afterwards, striking a match, he looked in at her to make certain she was dead. Then, leaving the dogs as they were, chained up, Mr. Tabrick went indoors again, and found the gardener, who had not yet gone home, gave him a month's wages in lieu of notice, and told him he had a job for him yet, to bury the two dogs, and that he should do it that same night. But by all this going on, with so much strangeness and authority on his part, as it seemed to them, the servants were much troubled. Hearing the shots while he was out in the yard, his wife's old nurse or nanny ran up to the bedroom, though she had no business there, and so, opening the door, saw the poor fox, dressed in my lady's little jacket, lying back in the cushions, and in such a reverie of woe that she heard nothing. Old nanny, though she was not expecting to find her mistress there, having been told that she was gone that afternoon to London, knew her instantly, and cried out, "'Oh, my poor precious! Oh, poor Miss Sylvia! What dreadful change is this!' Then, seeing her mistress start and look at her, she cried out, "'But never fear, my darling, it will all come right. Your old nanny knows you. It will all come right in the end.' But though she said this, she did not care to look again, and kept her eyes turned away, so as not to meet the foxy slit ones of her mistress, for that was too much for her. So she hurried out soon, fearing to be found there by Mr. Tabrick, and who knows, perhaps, shot like the dogs, for knowing the secret. Mr. Tabrick had all this time gone about paying off his servants and shooting his dogs, as if he were in a dream. Now he fortified himself with two or three glasses of strong whisky, and went to bed, taking his vixen into his arms, where he slept soundly. Whether she did or not is more than I, or anybody else, can say. End of part one